0: I'm going to ask Rita if she would come up for our scripture reading this morning. Um, as she does, you can turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, the passage will be on the screen as well, but we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word?
1: And now, Brothers. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that I gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnest, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnest of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his power, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And there he is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you are the first on, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eagerness, so that your eager willingness to do it might be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For it be willingness is there. The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be the quality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be the quality, as it is written. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Rita. Let's pray together. God, we ask now uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak clearly Uh, to us uh, as we engage this topic of uh, finances and uh, tithes and offerings. Lots of different ones of us bring uh, different baggage and different lenses and different perspectives to this. And so we ask that uh, you would be our teacher and our translator today so that we'd hear um, what it is, in fact, that you want us to hear. And because uh, all things are seen through your gospel, God, we pray that what we uh, hear and receive today would be very good news to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you can be seated. Thanks again to Rita for uh, reading our passage this morning. It feels like a, a little bit since I've been here. A couple weeks ago, I was preaching in one of our uh, church plants. Some of you know it's a Spanish-speaking church plant. I, I preached in Spanish, which is not normal for me. So some of you were praying for me on that, and I appreciate that. It was a good time with Iglesia del Pacto in um, the, the western suburbs. And then, of course, last week, we were worshiping with Glorious Light Church just a few blocks away for our joint service Thanks for turning out for that. That was just a fun morning to be uh, uh, attached to the, to the larger body of Christ. Uh, you know that we're in the middle of a Jonah sermon series. We'll pick that back up again uh, this coming Sunday, and we'll wrap that up in the next few weeks. Um, today, from 2 Corinthians, I'm preaching from the title, Why We Give. Why We Give. And to start, I actually want to talk not about giving, but about prisons. Uh, did you know that the United States has 5% of the, the total world population? So of everybody who's alive today, uh, 5% live in the United States. And yet, of all the prisoners in the world, 25% are in the United States. We have 5% of the population total, but 25% of the world's prisoners are in the United States. We have more prisoners in the U.S. than does any other country in the world. Did you know that? More prisoners than any other country in the world. Since 1983, uh, the prison population in the United States has grown 350%. Since, since 1983, uh, from 648,000 to 2.3 million today. Uh, and though there are only, there are 2.3 million people actually incarcerated today, there are 5 million people who are on probation or under supervision. So who, in other words, who are kind of still under state uh, supervision and control. By any measure, by any way you slice it, the, the U.S. prison system is, is just out of control. Um, despite the fact that, Across uh, races and ethnicities, people commit crimes at the same percentage. Um, the percentage of who gets locked up is, is just completely a, a huge disparity. Right? So if you're African-American, a, a young African-American boy, you have a one in three chance of going to prison at some point in your life. One in three. If you're a young a Latino boy, you have a one in six chance of going to prison someday. It's just out of control. It's just an ugly, nasty uh, system that we have and, and, and it seems obvious, like it should change, right? It should, this, this can't stand. How does this work? Right? And, and there's different reasons for why reform has been so hard, so impossible. Uh, but one of the, the major reasons is that we in the United States have figured out how to make money off of prisoners. Did you know that? We've actually figured out how to make money, and not a little bit of money, a lot of money, off of prisoners. In 1983, there were no for-profit prisons. There's none. Uh, today, Uh, Almost 130,000 people are in for-profit prisons, housed in in prisons uh, by the state or on the federal level. Do you know how much money is made off of these prisoners every year? Do you have any guesses? Over $3 billion. With a B. Over $3 billion is made off of prisoners now in the United States. It's crazy, right? Is that crazy? It's insane. These uh, uh, prison companies are actually publicly traded on the stock exchange. So it may be, it's those of you who have investments, you may have in your investment portfolio publicly traded for profit prisons now. It's nuts. It's crazy. Right? These uh, prison companies, businesses is what they are, they've invested over $20 million in lobbying efforts over the past decade. It's crazy. It's nuts. What does this have to do with giving? I'm preaching about generosity today. I'm preaching about tithing today. And we all have sort of assumptions when we hear that language. But I want us to start by recognizing that the world in which you and I inhabit has very specific ideals and assumptions about money and about the purpose of money and about how money is to be gained and used. And we need to understand this morning how fundamentally different a Christian vision of money is than the, the vision our world and our society has. We have to understand that when we talk about money and giving, we're not talking about a religious duty. We are talking about something that Jesus meant to completely subvert the oppressive and, um, and manipulative ways that money is used in our world. Are you, are you with me so far? As a church, we have to regularly talk about things like finances and, and tithing and generosity. we got to do that very regularly. We don't do that always. As some of you have told me we don't do that enough. But, but we got to do it regularly. Why? Because our culture tells us very certain, very specific things about money and resources and how those things impact our lives. Every single time you and I turn on the television, we're told that our personal worth is tied to our net worth. We're, we're told in so many different ways, subtly and overt, that the more resources a person has, the more privileges that person is entitled to. We're told, um, and again, we'll, as we move toward Christmas, we'll see this more and more, we'll be, we're told that our lives will be complete, they'll be meaningful once we possess that thing, once we go to that place, once we attain that status. We're told in so many different ways that people have value in as much as they can be profited from. As Christians, for whom the Bible is our authority, we have to say, we have to say that these cultural messages are not simply misguided. They are wrong. They are oppressive. They are a distortion of the kingdom of God we are called to proclaim and represent. We have to be crystal clear that the way that our world talks about money is a way to manipulate and mar the image of God in every one of us. Amen. Are you with me so far? So if you and I are going to resist the ways that our culture uses money to commodify to divide, to manipulate, then we have to immerse ourselves regularly in the gospel of generosity and grace. So before we get to that, a quick word about that word tithing. It's a word that Christians use a lot. It's a word we find in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a word that if we were to define it, we could say this. It's a a tenth of one's annual income set aside for spiritual or religious purposes. There's other ways we could define it, but broadly speaking, a tenth of one's annual income. And it would be uh, impossible, and it would be unwise for us to reduce all of biblical teaching about money just to tithing. However, it is important for us to notice how central tithing and generous giving is to a biblical understanding about money and resources. If, if you're taking the Bible seriously, it's very hard to talk about money or generosity without also talking about tithing and related themes. Right? So the biblical authors often begin with generous giving and tithing, and then they spiral outward to the many different ways that generosity plays out in the lives of we who know a generous God. Right? So, so, so tithing is a starting point to talk about whole life generosity. Does that make sense? It's a starting point. And so we'll follow that pattern today. All right, so to get at some of these themes, I want to ask three relatively simple questions. I want to ask, why do Christians give generously? I want to ask, how do we grow in generous giving? And finally, what happens when we give generously? If you're in a community group, You may want to take some notes today because you guys are going to dive in uh, pretty deep and practically into this conversation this coming week. Even if you're not in a community group, feel free to take notes. But especially if you're in a community group, you guys are going to be digging in pretty deep to some of this stuff. So why do we give generously? How do we grow in in our generous giving? And then finally, what happens when we give generously? Let's start with that first question. Why do Christians give generously? There's an entire biblical narrative and scope to this question. And we might think that, that we give generously because we're supposed to, because that's what The Old Testament law says we're supposed to do, but in fact, we find that generosity and tithing starts uh, long before there's any law, before there's any commandments about tithing. By the the fourth chapter in Genesis, Adam and Eve's children are tithing in the form of their sacrifices to God from their crops and their herds. By the 14th chapter of Genesis, Abram tithes 10% of his winnings in battle to Melchizedek, who's identified as a priest of God Most High. Up to this point, there's no command. There's no teaching about tithing whatsoever. They are tithing. They are giving instinctively, you might say. They they have an instinct to give, to recognize God's supremacy and God's generosity. And then we get to Israel, and God liberates his people from Egypt and, 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 and gives them the law. And here we begin to see for the first time kind of codified what generosity looks like for the people of God. And for them, the tithe was meant to support the Levites, whose job it was was to care for the temple, uh, as well as to care for the poor and the marginalized. So there's lots of passages that speak to this. Let me just read one to you. Deuteronomy 14 and 28 through 29. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your town may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Right. So, so, so part of this, we could say, like, if that were to be applied in our day, that would be like uh, churches setting aside part of their uh, resources to make sure that an, an, an undocumented immigrant would never be in need. Right. That would be sort of the equivalent. From that day, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, the person on the margin, make sure that anybody who's in your midst is cared for out of the abundance of your your tithes and your offerings. So there's a a system of tithing that's put in place. But again, the impetus, just like before, is generosity. Generosity is the motivation for the tithe. We get to Jesus, and we find in the New Testament that that same system is intact. There's a tithing system that's intact. But often, what Jesus points out is that the generosity has been kind of leached out of the tithing system system. And so this is what Jesus says in Matthew 23 and 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. He's confronting the religious leaders who are demanding the tithes. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Okay, so that's the, that's the tithe. So he says you're, you're tithing But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, you're you're, you're keeping the letter of the law, but you have forgotten the instinct for it. You've forgotten the, the, the rationale, the motivation for tithing. There's no generosity. There's no response to God's grace and God's generosity in your life. For Jesus, as in the pattern of the Old Testament, giving, tithing, generosity, is a response to a very generous God. We don't in the New Testament, and I want to be really clear and really honest about this, in the New Testament, when we don't find the instructions for tithing, here's how every Christian is supposed to give and tithe, that's just not there, that's not in the New Testament. What we find instead is a reflection, a continuation of what came before in the Scriptures, That is to say that generosity is meant to be a normal part of the Christian life, instinctual, a response. And generosity must be tangible. It must be practiced. It must be visible. So to go back to our first question, why do we give generously? This is how I'd answer that. We give generously as a response to a generous God and as a reflection of that generous God. We give generously as a response to our generous God. We have known God's generosity, and so there's an instinct to respond generously. And we also give as a reflection of that generous God. That is, when we give, we are meant to reflect something of God's generosity to the world. Does that make sense? This is why we give, in response to a generous God and to reflect a generous God. And Paul says this in our passage. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says in verse 9. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's a response. You have known the generosity of God through Jesus, and so you respond accordingly. Our generosity is a response to the gospel, and it is a reflection of the gospel. A watching world should see the generosity of God's people and understand that within the economy of God's kingdom as won by Jesus, there can be no room for something like for-profit prisons that make money for their shareholders on the backs of ever more prisoners. Such a concept, such a reality should be clearly antithetical to the people of God. When the world observes our generosity, they should know that such a thing would never be okay among God's people. Amen? And they... Oftentimes greedy and self-centered world, the Bible repeatedly reveals an alternative way to live. A generous way of life where we acknowledge God's kindness. Where our resources are used for the good of our neighbors. Where we have been liberated from our fear and anxiety about money. Where the joy of giving replaces the stinginess of taking. Our generosity, our giving, will be instinctual and intentional, and it will always be a response to the generous gospel of God. It will always reflect God's generosity through Jesus. This is why we give generously. Second question, how do we grow in our generous giving? We need to be honest. That in a world that accepts and uh, uh, submits to the logic of for-profit prisons, you and I have been affected by that same logic. We breathe the same air. And so that's an offensive example to many of us, but we need to be honest this morning and realize that we have been affected and manipulated in similar ways in how we think about money and its role in our lives. So let's just assume for a minute that every single one of us today has room to grow when it comes to generosity. Is that a safe assumption? Are you okay with that? All right. How might we intentionally engage that growth? How do we grow in generous giving? Four ideas for us today. First, we give comprehensively. Our society elevates and recognizes one primary form of generosity, the very rich person giving very large public donations. We love those stories, right? We're great about celebrating those stories, about naming buildings after those events, right? That's the sort of generosity that we acknowledge and welcome and know how to talk about. But that is not how the kingdom of God works. In the kingdom of God, every single citizen of that kingdom has some area where she or he can give generously. Just think for a second about everything that is under your influence. As a citizen of God's kingdom for a second, just if you can make a list, what is everything that is currently under your influence? Money would be one of those things, right? But again, within the kingdom, we don't stop there. How about your time? How about resources like where you live or if you have a car or if you have a computer? What about the education that you've had? What about your relational network, the people that you know? What about your business network? We could go on and on the cultural experience that you bring with you, your family's history. You are a steward of a vast number of areas that within the kingdom of God all count. They all matter. And God has called you to be a steward over each of these, bringing these to bear for the good of our neighbors. God has asked you to manage all of these areas well. All of these areas are locations, are places for generosity, for whole life, wholehearted generosity. We give comprehensively. Second, we give sacrificially. Paul's very clear about this in verses 2 and 3. In the midst of a very severe trial, speaking of the Macedonian church here, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. I love this. The, the example that Paul holds up is not the people who gave the most. It's not the, the people who are making the most. The people who Paul holds up as the example of generosity are the people who are suffering under extreme poverty. You see that? of sounds like something Jesus would do, right? I know this language of sacrificial giving can make us uncomfortable, can make us squirm, but the fact is, it's it's an unnervingly regular concept in the Bible. Jesus sees the widow coming to the temple with her little coins that if you and I were to pass them on the street, we wouldn't even bother to pick them up. And Jesus sees her, and he honors her. He recognizes her generosity, giving he says, out of her poverty. How do you know if you're giving sacrificially? Are there things that you can't buy for yourself because you've given generously? Is there something you'd like to buy for yourself that you might be used to buying for yourself that you, you can't this month because you've given generously? Is your discretionary spending limited by your generosity? Or is it the other way around? Is your generosity limited by your discretionary spending? There's questions that we can ask ourselves, not comfortable questions. I don't like asking myself these questions at all. And yet, there are ways that we can move this idea of sacrificial giving from this vague concept to something that has application in our lives. It's important that our giving is sacrificial because again, remember our generosity is meant to reflect God's generosity to us and God's generosity to us was nothing if not sacrificial. God's generosity to us is expressed perfectly in the sacrificial death of his son for us. There's something about how we give in very tangible ways that is meant to demonstrate and to point to and to hint at God's great sacrifice for us. Are you with me? Third, we give intentionally. Kind of a disciplined giving. In verse 7, Paul says, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Paul is saying, Get better and better at generosity. Paul's saying, Practice generosity until you excel at it. What does that look like? What does disciplined giving look like in our lives? It begins with understanding our finances. Right? Do, you, do you know? Do you, have a, do you have a sense of your financial picture? Do you know your income? Do you know your expenses? Do you know where you spend things? That's we got to start with that, right? Some of us are kind of naturally oriented that way. I'm not. I'm not. I don't love. I don't love that kind of stuff. We need to have a sense of of what God has given us to steward, again, not just our finances, but every area in which we've been called to be managers in our lives. We have to have a a, a picture, a snapshot of those those places. What what does disciplined giving look like? We can use the the, the biblical tithe um, to evaluate our giving, to be intentional about it. Some of you... If, if, if someone in your community group was to say, what, what percentage of your income are you tithing? You, you, would, you would know the answer to that question. Right? It's, it's just a little overwhelming to you, right? Like, I throw some money in it when it goes by, and I to try to think about it because it's kind of overwhelming, right? Well, as Christians, we're called to know. We're called to think about that. We're called to be intentional about that, right? So if you don't know, figure out. How much are you able to give right now? Maybe it's 1%. Maybe it's 2%. That's okay. No. Be knowledgeable, have a starting point about that. Use the biblical tithe, 10%, as a way to think, how can I grow in my generosity? Others of you who 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 give 10% and are not even feeling it, it's not a sacrifice for you. You can use that 10% as a evaluation tool as well. And say, "What, what would it look like for me to grow into my sacrificial giving? Anybody uncomfortable yet? Anybody? Just me? How do we um, be disciplined in our giving? When when, uh, Maggie and I first got married, um, some advice that we got as we started to keep a budget for the first time, we kind of used an Excel spreadsheet, was to, um, in in our first budget category, put tithe. So the very first thing, and then like, you know, groceries and gas and all that all that school debt and all that kind of stuff. But the very first thing, and I don't know if we would have thought of that on our own, but it was good advice and so we put it there and, and for us that's like a, a a discipline an intentional way. It wasn't our idea. We're not great. We're not someone else told us you should do that. But it's a way very specifically and practically to say what's what's the first amount that I can set aside? And just to just kind of be in a rhythm and a habit of that. Some of you could start utilizing things like a bill pay. You use your you, you pay your bills that way. You could you could you know, and give money that way. You could use the church's e-give system to be intentional about that. Right? I'm getting very practical, very specific right now. I've had a, 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 a kind of a funny amount of conversations lately where people are like, "Oh, yeah, I just I've meant to be giving. I want to get. Gi- I just forget about it." So that's a thing that exists. We're busy people, right? So if we're going to grow in our generosity. If we're going to grow, then we got to be intentional about this. Is that? A, can I say that? Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Fourth thing, we give joyfully. In verse 2, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. The Macedonian churches were suffering. They were poor. They knew it. And yet they were joyful in their giving. Their generosity had nothing to do with their circumstances. Their joy had nothing to do with their circumstances. How we feel about giving is not tied to whatever our current circumstances are. The Macedonians' joy was not tied to the total amount that they gave to the persecuted church in Jerusalem. That's not where their joy came from because we gave this much. No, their, their joy came from the fact that their generosity was not bound by their circumstances. Right? regardless of the, the extreme poverty in which they were suffering, they were still generous givers, and from that, they were joyful. Contrary to pro- popular belief, you and I can actually choose joy. We can choose to be joyful without faking it. You can take time to remember why you are giving. You can soak In the gospel of God's generosity, you can remember past times of God's faithfulness to you where God came through for you in a very specific way. You can consider how the Holy Spirit will use your generous giving to impact someone else's life. You can choose joy. You can choose to be joyful givers. Rather than giving mindlessly or dutifully, give joyfully. You still with me? Okay, last question. What happens when we give generously? Why, how we grow in this, what happens when we give generously? This seems maybe like a shallow question. As Americans, we're pretty used to paying for goods and services, and we think about our giving in that way, right? Especially when it comes to church stuff. I give my tithes, I give my offering. As a result, there's ministry that's happening, rent is paid, pastors and staff are paid, and and those things are all true. That stuff happens. But God's economy is not nearly so simplistic or transactional as our economy is. There's far more happening when we give generously than a mere uh, exchange of religious goods and services. Okay, So let me just give a few of these to you. These are things that are, that are happening when we give generously. First, when we give generously, God is worshipped. When you and I think about corporate worship, about what happens in this kind of hot gym when we come together on a Sunday, we think about things like singing, fellowship, preaching, those sorts of things, right? And all of those things are important elements of worship. And yet, the Bible acknowledges, in lots of different ways, just how quickly those things, those worship-like things, can become a facade, right? They can become a religious performance with no connection to how we actually live, The Bible acknowledges this this Human temptation to put on a show, to put on a mask. We're good at it, right? So I don't think it's coincidental that in the Old Testament, the tithes and offerings were always given in the setting of corporate worship, because giving, sacrificial, generous giving becomes a mirror to my worship. Am I simply going through the motions? Am I performing a religious duty? Am I trying to gain God's favor? If these are my motivations, none of those will be strong enough to sustain radical generosity that is a response to and a reflection of God's generosity. Generosity that is comprehensive, sacrificial, intentional, and joyful is going to spill over into the rest of our worship. Our hearts and heads are reminded that this is not a game. We stand in the presence of a God who could rightly demand everything from us and yet who instead has given everything to us. When we give generously, God is worship. Second, when we give generously, justice is pursued. We've already seen how the Old Testament tithe provided for the widow, the foreigner, the alien. Did you know that as a church, actually we tithe 15%? Did you know that? Raise your hand if you actually knew that. We should maybe mention that more often. It's an important part of who we are. Like, so all uh, of your uh, uh, tithes and offerings that are given to the church, 15% of that is set aside as our church's tithes. 5% of that goes to kind of local church planting efforts. 5% of that goes to local missionaries. 5% of that goes uh, to our denomination, where a, a, a large chunk of it is given to one specific family. You've, some of you have met them, the Delps, who are in Ecuador. And they're working to establish health clinics in rural Ecuador in partnership and by the invitation of the local church there so that people who currently don't have access to health care will have access to health care clinics in their villages. So your, your gifts, your tithes, your offerings are going directly to support that sort of work. So generosity among God's people is meant to advance justice in the world. But there's another way that, that this, this justice piece plays out in the church, and it's a little bit—I want you to just focus for a second. It's a little bit fuzzy. It's a little bit hard for we American people to kind of get our, our heads around. But I, so I want you to listen carefully to what Paul says here in verses 13 through 15. He says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what is in need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. The one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. That would be a a great sort of explanation of American society today. There are those who've gathered much and who have too much, more than they know what to do with, and those who are working very hard who are only able to gather little, and it is too little. This is not how things work in the kingdom of God. Did you notice the word that's repeated here? The goal is what? Say it loud. Equality. Hmm. This means that generosity within the church is meant to nurture an entirely alternative and just economy among the people of God. I know we're getting like, is this like getting like the Marxist now? Is that where we're going, Michelle? She's like, our a, like a resident sociologist, she's like, ooh, it's good life. We're not going to have a revolution today or anything like that. Or maybe we will, I don't know. But, but, but Paul's pretty clear here. Like, he, here's how it works out there. But among you... The goal is something entirely different. The goal is equality. So that when you're in need, someone else is able to provide for you. And when they're in need, you're able to provide for them. The goal is not that someone has too much, someone has too little. The goal is equality. What does that look like for us? We're still working on that. We're still trying to figure that out. We have a benevolence fund as a church, which many of you give to very generously, so that if someone has a financial need within the church, there's a way in which we can meet those financial needs. We've been able to help people out who were uh, in danger of losing um, their housing right, because of a, of a medical issue. And we were able to come alongside that person and make sure that they didn't lose their housing. That's one of the ways that we're trying to figure that out. We prioritize uh, ministries to children and youth. Right? People who we've, as best we can tell, noticed are kind of on the margins of how our city works, particularly in, the, in, in some of our neighborhoods where... Uh, Certain schools and neighborhoods and blocks are passed over, right? And so we've said we want, we want there to be ministries in our church that acknowledge the full worth, value, and dignity of our children and our youth. We're still growing into this. Stick around for the meeting after the service today. We're going to be talking about how we're doing that uh, next year. Some of you will know. Some of you this will be news to. We sent a group. How many young people did we send to Malawi a couple summers ago? Seven, young, seven youth from our neighborhood, along with some of our leaders, we sent to Malawi where they had the chance to serve along with um, Young Life at a camp in in Malawi, right? So our attempts to say, if this is your community, if this is your church, then you're going to be participating in the work of God's kingdom. This is is what it looks like for us to pursue this notion of, of equality and justice. In our church, we challenge those who can give more than they are, quote, supposed to, to actually give more on behalf of those who wish they could give more, but are not able to. See, that's how that concept plays out. Those who have more at a given time are able to give more on behalf of those who are unable to. This is how this alternative just economy works. There are so many hard-to-quantify ways in which those with more of a certain resource, remember it's not always money, will spend and use that resource for those who have less of it. When um, this summer, uh, um, you guys know um, Maggie and I and Elliot, got to adopt little Winston. And it happened way quicker than we were expecting. From the first phone call to when it was legally done, it was less than a month. Breakneck speed. A very overwhelming handful of weeks for us. And you guys supported us in lots of really, really great ways. Um, One of the ways that we really experienced that was after the adoption was complete and Winston had been placed with us, Um, the the birth family had to move from their apartment across the city to another apartment, the birth mother and the birth father. And they they didn't have a driver's license. They didn't have a way of renting a truck. They needed to move their stuff. And they asked us if we could help them. And we just, we couldn't do it. Like we just, we were sleep deprived. (laughs) We were trying to figure out how to be a family of four instead of a family of three. We just, and so I emailed a handful of people in the church and said, here's the situation. Could you help? And do you know, like within less than 24 hours, it was taken care of. Like People in the church said, we got it. Don't worry about it. And they connected with this birth family. They rented the truck, drove over, uh, unloaded stuff from the old apartment, drove up to another part of the city, got them offloaded their stuff into this new apartment, got to know them along the way. And my guess is that, that those handful of folks who volunteered to do that, they're like, it's not a big deal, right? Not a big deal. But to us, who did not have that resource of time or energy or emotional capacity, now Maggie and I could tell you, like, we were, we were literally overwhelmed in that, by that experience because we, we, we tasted a little bit of kind of just equality in that moment, right? Where out of our depletion and our weakness, someone stepped alongside of us and said, I got, I have time. I have some energy. I'm going to step in for you and make sure this happens. Is that, is that are you tracking with me? Right? So we're not just talking about money here. Every single one of us has resources that we are able to steward on behalf of our neighbors and our community. So from, from, from health clinics among the poor in Ecuador to ministries that honor those, our world, our city overlooks to the small but very significant ways in which we are pursuing equality within our community. This is what it looks like when we give generously and justice is pursued. Third, third, What happens when we give generously? Community is nourished. Uh, The Old Testament instructions for the tithe include bringing flocks and grains to the feast. The context is always communal. And it's important that we think about these things as individuals, but the context is always communal. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, um, but I want to say that one of the ways, one of the gifts, one of the ways that we nourish community through our giving and receive help in that is that we don't do this privately. Now, this is really going to push some of you, but Within a, a church setting, you have access to people who you can talk to about these things, right? So some of you are in significant debt right now, and you have no pathway. You have no sense of how I'm going to get out of debt, right? There are people in this church who you could sit down to and you could talk to about that, right? There are others of you who cannot get your spending under control, right? Like there, there's this—I don't know what it is. There's some kind of thing. There's some kind of website. There's, there's that one clothing store. It's, it's something, Right? Is that one brand of that, like, and it's, you can just, like, you don't want to, but it pops up, and it's like, next thing you know, you've spent an hour and a half on that website, and you know what the credit card bill is going to look like when it comes, right? Like There are people in our church who you could confess that to, You and say, I need your help in this way. Our, our community groups, again, are going to be, I'm asking them to kind of lean into this one a little bit together this week. We'll, it's up to them whether they do it or not. But suggesting that they actually think about, talking about the percentages of their, of their giving. Right, so maybe not like, here's my dollar amount, right? Although some of our groups have done that before. They've opened up their checkbooks to one another and said, "Let hold me accountable in this area. Like, what if, what if our group started just sharing, here's the percentage that I'm giving generously. Right? And maybe, and I feel really good about this. I feel like this is really what God has called me to. Or maybe, and I want some help in, 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 in growing in this area of generosity. Is it getting hot in here? Is anybody getting low? Is anybody a we can do that right we can find healthy safe nourishing ways to build into our community as we t- have very honest open conversations about a topic that the world says no no you don't talk about that right there are private things and that is one of them and as christians we go like no actually no not for us not for us do you know why because The resources that Monica is managing and the resources that I'm managing and the resources that Q is managing, guess what? They all belong to the same person, and it's not us, right? So so the stuff that's represented by my checkbook, it's not mine. It belongs to God, right? So why would I think that I'm equipped all by myself to figure this out all by myself, right? I I need to have conversations with the other stewards, with the other managers, with the other servants and say, how are we we all doing at, at this? Because one day the master will return. How did you do at investing my resources? Are you with me? Last one. Last thing that happens when we give generously is that God pours out his blessing. The Old Testament prophet Malachi accuses Israel of robbing God by withholding portions of their tithes from God. They've robbed God. And then God challenges the people to test him and to see what will happen if they return to their former generosity. So Malachi 3 and 10, this is God speaking. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, full disclosure, it's real easy for pastors and churches to take this passage and manipulate it, right? Anybody been there before? Anybody sat in that sermon before? It's like, Well, here's the equation. You give this much, and then God is bound to do this much for you, right? And some of you have experienced sort of the reality. Right? This tends to not be how God does things. God does what God wants to do. We should never use our giving to manipulate God. And it is foolish for us to try to predict what form God's blessing will take in our lives. When you think about God's blessing right now, I guarantee every single one of us has, has an idea of what that blessing should look like. Right? It's that person that you want to be dating. It's that job that you want to get. It's getting out of debt. It's, right? We all know, like, oh yeah, I would totally know when God is blessing me. <laughs> well, well, maybe, maybe not. So we should never try to manipulate God through our giving. We don't know what what form God's blessing will take. But it would also be wrong for us to think that God does not respond joyfully and lovingly to those whose giving reflects their love for God and their trust in God. There's clearly something here about God's blessing being poured out extravagantly on those whose hearts are generous to God. We don't have to apologize for that. Our God is good. Our God gives good gifts to the people He loves. There's no argument about that. There's no if about that. The cross is our evidence for all time that this is true. What this means is that though we might begin attempting to give sacrificially, saying, "This will really stretch me, this will really be a sacrifice. Sacrifice will never be the totality of our experience. God's blessing will always outshine your sacrifice. It's the gospel. We lay down our lives. We die to ourselves. We're crucified with Christ. Only to find on the other side that what seemed like death, what seemed like sacrifice was our step into abundant and eternal life. Amen? Here's what I want you to walk away with, and then we're done. I want you to know that our world is not neutral when it comes to how money is used. I want you to remember that today. I want us to be really humble and honest about the fact that each of us have breathed that same air we have been formed and deformed in some significant ways when it comes to thinking about money and how it is used and what its purposes are. I want us to walk away knowing that generosity, that generous giving is always meant to be a response to the gospel and a reflection of the gospel. When we give generously, when we choose to give generously, we are resisting and subverting the financial manipulation, oppression, and anxiety of our world. When it comes to money and generosity, I want you to know, I want you to walk away this morning knowing that you are not a passive spectator and you are not a consumer. You are God's steward, of everything that is under your influence. And as a citizen of the kingdom of God, every single one of you has significant resources under your influence. And you get to choose to grow in your generous giving, to excel in the grace of giving. And then finally, finally, I want you to anticipate I want you to anticipate and expect God to honor your generosity by deeper worship, by greater justice in our world, by stronger community, and by surprising, surprising blessings in our lives. Is that okay? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the most excellent and eternal um, example of generosity. We thank you that you uh, set aside the riches of heaven and became, as our text this morning says, a poor for us, so that so that we might become rich in you. Well, we, th- we thank you for stepping away from your throne, For stepping away from your glory. For stepping away from every privilege that was rightfully yours. For giving all of that up for us. So that we would know the riches of the Father. We pray for an ongoing conversion out of a world that wants to twist how we think about money that wants to put a a dollar amount on different people, that wants to to manipulate and to, to commodify. Convert us away from that to an entirely new understanding of what you mean for us to do, yes, with our money, but also with our time, with our influences, with our relationships how all of these can be brought to bear for the good, for the good, for the good of our neighbors. How all of these are meant to reflect the amazing generosity of our God. So for any of us today who are not experiencing you as generous, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break us open. That we would see again, uh, in in a fresh and compelling way, the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. That this is what would captivate our hearts. We would be overcome and overwhelmed by all that you have done, by your kindness and your goodness and your generosity. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I ask the ushers to come forward to receive the offering this morning. Please, would you take your welcome card and your prayer card. Hopefully, you've had time to fill those out. Um, if you're not receiving our a newsletter, um, Use that welcome card to, to, to drop that in as well. We have offering envelopes that are available for you now. Um, some of you uh, t- like to give in, uh, in cash, which is great. Uh, this envelope just allows us to send you a, a tax-exempt receipt at the end of the year if that's something you're interested in. So please do feel free to take advantage um, uh, of that. So thank you very much for uh, this very tangible response to maybe a sermon that... At least for me, it was a little bit uncomfortable today. So let's pray for God's blessing over this. God, thank you for um, this people and uh, for, their, for our um, generosity. Lord, um, keep forming us um, and reforming us into a people who, together, uh, can, can be a more accurate representation and reflection of, um, of who you are. Um, and, 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 if, and if it would please you, God, would you allow um, our growing into this together Uh, to be a means to proclaim your goodness and generosity to more people who could know that there is an entirely uh, different way to live in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is king, absolutely everything is different. Amen? We just put our hands together really quickly and thank God for being our king, for being our Lord, for being our Savior, for flipping the script of our lives. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. I need to say a couple things. Uh, We have a, a meeting right after the service. I'd love it if all of you could stay for that. This is our strategic planning meeting. So members you are already aware of this but even if you're not a member we would love to have you participate you're going to hear kind of where we believe god is taking us in 2015 we want your input we're going to pray together for a few minutes please please stick around for that if you are a guest if you're new there's a sign-up sheet in the back for a newcomer's lunch that's coming up my wife and i'd love to host you in our home in a few weeks and feed you and just get to know you a little bit uh, parents after the service please go uh, get your children Relieve our great kids city workers if you didn't get a chance to give or put your um welcome a prayer card in the in the basket please just drop it by on the way out and our prayer team will be uh, available here to pray for you uh, after the service so a lot to remember Um, uh, but please do stick around for our strategic planning meeting and i receive the benediction you are our king and we want to live as if this is true we want every single area of our lives through the power of your holy spirit god to be a reflection and a response to your kingship uh, to the reign and the rule of king jesus in our lives certainly we want that to include our generosity, but God, uh, we, we in this moment we bring uh, everything that we, we came in here with, any stress, any anxiety, any worry, any depression, um, any hope, any anticipation, any expectation, we bring all of this before you and we ask that you would rule and reign as King Jesus in every one of those places of our lives, that every single one of those places would look different, sometimes dramatically, sometimes subtly, because you are King, and so everything has changed. So send us out uh, proclaiming, reflecting, king of all things in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit and the church said amen 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 go in peace